Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you as your people this morning to worship you, as you've called us to do, but as also as our joy to do. We thank you that you have called us out from the world, uh, that, that you have saved us, that you have run us down even when we were running away from you, that you sent your son to, to die in our place and be raised for us, who can intercede for us as that priest that Marcos read about in heaven with you. We pray uh, as we open your word together in a moment that, that you would speak to us through it, whether this is a normal pattern for us and we're here Sunday by Sunday eager to hear from you or whether this is the first time in a very long time or maybe even ever that we've assembled with your people for worship. We pray that we would hear your voice in the Bible, the, the words that you inspired, the words that you had people write long ago. We pray that you would speak through them to us today. Father, we pray for those we have sent out from our church around this world uh, to take that good news of Jesus that we're celebrating even here today. We pray for them that you would be at work in them and through them and that you would be ministering through their efforts, through their words, through their good deeds uh, to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it. That you would be establishing churches, that you would be saving sinners. Father, we pray that our work as a church would advance through them. Father, we pray this morning for those uh, who, as they hear Jesus called the man of sorrows, as we just sang, who are feeling that they can resonate today, uh, that they are full of sorrow, they are full of sadness. There's weights that they are bearing today that maybe even only they know in the privacy of their heart. I pray that they would know that you are very aware of that today. And Jesus, I pray as the man of sorrows who has suffered far worse than any of us could even imagine upon the cross, I pray that you would meet with those individuals this morning, that you would let them know your love for them, your attention to them, and your power to help, your power to save, and your faithfulness to them even when others are unfaithful. Father, we pray uh, that you would accompany your word with power now, and we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. You all can take a seat. If you did not have a seat, which I know some of you maybe didn't know you needed to see, we tried to put uh, some extra chairs out. Uh, there's a few over here. I think there's some maybe even in the back in different places uh, that if you need a chair, uh, look around and hopefully you can find one. But there's more of you that came than what we even anticipated, which is awesome. Uh, but we, uh, we tried to get word out, but we are sorry if you have to end up sitting on the grass. But thanks for bearing with us uh, if that is you this morning. Um, but one you to, if you have a copy of the Bible, which if you uh, don't, we'd love to give you one and get you one uh, for the weeks ahead. But I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Daniel. It's a, a book of the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, kind of near the end of the Old Testament, uh, after some of those big books of the Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It comes right after that. It's tucked away in there. But uh, we're going to start going through this book of the Bible today. That's If you're not normally part of our church, that's usually how we do our sermons, is that we start at the beginning of a book of the Bible, and then we slowly work our way through it uh, Sunday by Sunday. And so this Sunday, today, we're starting a new book of the Bible, uh, this book of Daniel. And we're going to try to do this one chapter per week. So we're going to walk through this first chapter today. Uh, and then next Sunday, if you're able to be back with us again, uh, we'll go through the second chapter and then so on and so forth as we go uh, through these 12 chapters of this book of the Bible. But uh, as you seek to find that, I uh, wanted to, to share just by way of introduction, uh, there's been 
been a few people, a few young people in our church who have actually joined the military recently, uh, that have joined different branches of the military in different capacities. But even within the last several weeks, uh, their families, and one of them I know is married, their spouse has sent them off to basic training, uh, to what we often call boot camp in our society. And what that is, I'm not a military veteran, but I have a lot of folks in my family who were in the military. Uh, what basic training is like, what that boot camp is like, it's an intensive set of weeks, about six to 12 weeks, where uh, the essentially I've heard some people describe it as these drill sergeants, the, the officers there, are they're seeking to take the civilian out of you and make you into a soldier. So they're trying to take the civilian out of you and make you into a soldier. And so there's various things they try to do to, uh, to do that, to try to accomplish that. So they immediately give you clothes that you have to wear. You're not allowed to just wear what you want. They even curb what type of hairstyles you're allowed to have. They control what food you eat. They control how much communication that you have outside with others, how frequently and the nature of it. They try to replace individual thinking of yourself as an individual with group thinking, thinking of yourself uh, as a part of a larger whole. They, they try to, if you come in with pride and arrogance, they try to smash that as quick as they can and get that out of you. Uh, they seek to, in a lot of ways, change your identity to help take the civilian out of you and make you into an effective soldier. And while drill sergeants, they do this for noble purposes, for, for purposes that are good, there is a reality in our human experience where sometimes there's governments or there are groups of people who try to do that type of reprogramming of others, but they don't do it for noble purposes. They do it for darker purposes. They do it for more sinister purposes where they try to isolate people. They try to control them. They try to indoctrinate them to make them into their loyal subjects. Uh, they, they try to, to take the fill in the blank out of them and make them one of us and force them to do so. And as we open up the book of Daniel this morning, we're going to see a human king who was trying to do just that, uh, who he was taking even the people of God, the Israelites in the Old Testament time. He, he was trying to break them down and assimilate them into his culture of Babylon, make them loyal subjects of him. And what we're going to see as we read this text and walk through it chunk by chunk this morning is that his name is Nebuchadnezzar, the king, but behind him, we're going to see that Satan, the one that Jesus called the ruler of this world, that he uses similar tactics even today and always has, that he's trying to deprogram the people of God and make them loyal to him. And so we're going to walk through this, see the, the reprogramming of Nebuchadnezzar, but we're going to be alerted, I hope, as human beings who are alive in 2020 uh, to the, the, the tactics of Satan, the one who seeks to program or reprogram us. And so we'll, we'll learn to resist his efforts and to listen instead to the commands of Christ. So I want to read the first two verses of Daniel 1, and then we'll pick up pace as we go. But I want to read the first two verses of this book of the Bible so we kind of know what this world is that we're opening a window into. Because this happened long, long ago, thousands of years ago is when this took place. These are real things that happened to real people, but it's a foreign world to us. It's a, a world we may not be very familiar with. So I want to read these first two verses to help kind of set the stage of what's going on in this book of the Bible, what the setting of it is. So as we walk through it today and the weeks ahead, we better understand. So if you found Daniel 1, I'm going to read the first two verses of the, this book of the Bible. It begins this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the setting here, this happened about, and we can tell even by the timestamp there in verse 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. This took place at, that began at least around 605 BC. So think of how when Jesus was born and then think 600 years even before that. Uh, that is when this book begins, and we're going to see it ends far later than that. But the backstory to this book of the Bible is that God had established a nation. He had established a nation of people known as Israel, the Israelites, and he had rescued them out of slavery. He'd given them this land to live in, uh, and then he had given them kings to rule over them. He'd given them a capital city of Jerusalem and this temple, this building even that he lived in, took up residence in. But then he also gave them a law to follow. And he called them to, to obey him and live the way that he called them to live. But what we see happen throughout the Old Testament is that they disobeyed and they disobeyed. And God warned them if they continued in that and didn't repent that someday he was going to kick them out of the land. Someday he was going to remove his hand of blessing and he was going to kick them out. And what we see happening here in the book of Daniel is that coming to fruition. That as they generation after generation didn't listen to God, at long last God's patient has warned Thin, and he sends this foreign king named Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon, this uh, not a kind king, but a very powerful king. He sends him to their capital city of Jerusalem, and verse 1 says that he besieged it, that he sought to take it over. And it happened in a few waves, uh, but this first wave, it says that he at least overpowered that city enough to where he was able to take vessels from the temple, these gold, important vessels of the Israelite people. He was able to take those and take them back to his land of Babylon. We're going to see in a moment that more importantly, he took people with him. That was far more important in his mind than taking possessions. But what we're going to see in this book, if you're able to stay with us in the weeks ahead, is that it's 12 chapters long, and it's going to be divided right in half. The first six chapters are going to be stories. They're going to be historical events that actually happened to this man named Daniel and to some of his friends. Stories you're probably familiar with, like Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these uh, young men who are thrown into a fiery furnace, but who God spared. Th those first six chapters are going to cover a lot of those things that happened in Babylon when God's people were taken there in an exile. And then the second half is going to be very different for us. It's a lot of visions that Daniel had. Visions he had from his vantage point in the 600s BC uh, to looking forward of kingdoms that would rise and fall. Kings that would rise and fall. Empires that would rise and fall. And it, his visions, were, we'll see, were so accurate that when people read them today, they think there's no way a human being could have known that. There's no way that he could have predicted that. Uh, and so they assume it was written, this book was written way later in time, after all these things had unfolded, after all these empires had risen and fallen. But I want to point your attention to one thing in those verses I just read. Did you note at the start of verse 2 it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was powerful, but God, you see, from the beginning of this book, is in charge of everything. He's in charge of every king. He knows past, present, future. And so it's no wonder that he gave Daniel these insights into being able to see what would happen in the future. So that's a little bit of background. Now I want to start in verse 3, and I want to read through verse 7. And I would call this section, if you like to take notes, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's boot camp, 
or Nebuchadnezzar's basic training because we're going to see that he not just brought vessels back to Babylon, but he brought people back to Babylon. And he's seeking to program them. He's seeking to reprogram them to make them into faithful Babylonians, to take the Israel out of them and make them Babylonians. And so follow along with me, verses 3 through 7. The story continues this way. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's another word for Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. What we see here is, is King Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king, his efforts to reprogram some of the young people of Israel as he brought them to his land and into his territory. And you can see a couple of his strategies, can't you, right off the bat of how he was trying to do that, how he was trying to break them down, take the Israel out of them, and make them into faithful Babylonians. The first thing you can see is that he tried to isolate them, right? Instead of just leaving them in Jerusalem and trying to rule from afar, he actually took some of them and brought them into his territory. He, he, he wanted to break them from their relationships, from their familiarity of seeing the temple and their teachers who would read the law of God to them, and even from their families, probably it seems. He wanted to isolate them relationally, physically separated them. But what you see also is that he went after their minds, he tried to reprogram the way that they even think as the people of God, right? It says that he uh, assigned to them food, which we'll talk about in a moment, and they were to be educated for three years. And what they were trying to, what he was trying to teach them was that he was teaching that having people teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. It's another word for the Babylonians. And so these people, these young people who had grown up hearing the law of God, they'd grown up hearing what we call the Old Testament. Now, in place of that, King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to teach them the, the, the theology, the beliefs of his people, the, 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 the stories that they had of how human beings came to be, and the beliefs that they held to of what was important, what was moral, what the end of human beings would be. He was trying to indoctrinate them. You see that he didn't just try to attack the minds of these young people, but he also used their stomachs as a means to control them too, didn't he? It says that he, in verse 5, he assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. This would have been nice food and drink. And it may be tempting for us to think, man, Nebuchadnezzar is such a nice guy. Like, man, that's so generous of him to, to care for these young people and to give them such nice food and drink. But I assure you that King Nebuchadnezzar was not just being kind. He was not just being benevolent or things like that, like just showing good favor to these young people. He was crafty. And he knew that if I can give them good food, if I can give them good drink, if I can fill their stomachs uh, with the, the finest of things here, that'll make them more likely to also drink down my worldview. 
to also believe what I ask them to believe. So instead of being cruel to them, he tries to be kind to them to help reprogram. There's a saying that many of you probably know where people say that more flies are caught with honey than with vinegar. The same is true here, that he's trying to, to give them a sweet, what looks like a sweet gift to distract them and to get them to listen to him and what he uh, provides for them, to make them even dependent on him for their food and drink, their very livelihood, and to distract them from the bigger questions of God distract them from the bigger questions of life and to just be satisfied with the next meal that they could look forward to. And the last way you see his strategy is he tries to attack their identity, right? He gave them new names. Like we could read right past that, but he takes their names, the names that they have been given by their families of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were names that all, without getting into detail, all had some reference in their language to the God of Israel, that even in their names, there were these statements about the God of Israel and what he was like. But when they come to Babylon, they're assigned these new names of, of Belteshazzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And it's totally lost on us, but those names would have all had reference to Babylonian gods. To things that they were wanting, even when they would hear those names called, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was wanting them to hear reference to his gods and to start to lose their identity as being faithful to the God of Israel and see themselves as being faithful to the gods of Babylon. And what I want us to see today is that Nebuchadnezzar's reprogramming of these people is, is a picture of how Satan seeks to reprogram us as the people of God. That from the beginning, Satan has sought to intimidate God's people he has sought to indoctrinate God's people. He's sought to enslave God's people, hasn't he? That has always been Satan's agenda. He, he loves, like Nebuchadnezzar did with these young men, he loves to isolate us from God's people. He loves to just subtly teach us to absorb the worldview of our day. To instead of going to God and to reading his scriptures and the things that he has said are true, that, that we go to movies to entertainment, we go to talking heads on television, we go to whatever philosophies are popular in the day instead of learning the literature and the language of God. Satan loves to give us nice things as he's allowed to by God to, to distract us. He, he is glad to see us have comfortable houses and wonderful meals and good jobs and families that we like having around, Satan would love to have us have those things if they distract us from the things that are more important. And Satan seeks to have us identify ourselves in all sorts of other ways, maybe not in our very name, but in the labels we let get attached to ourselves, that we let take precedence over the label of Christian. Without singling out too many of us, I would ask how many of us give in to that, where we identify ourselves more quickly as a Republican or as a Democrat instead of as a Christian, or as a conservative or as a liberal, or as a capitalist, or an anti-racist, an anti-masker, an anti-vaxxer, as a more enduring thing, we label ourselves as an artist or an athlete or as an introvert, or as an extrovert, or as a man, or as a woman, or blue collar, or white collar, we let all these labels get attached to us, and we start to own them as being some of the defining things about us, even above our standing with God. And Satan loves that. He loves for us to take on those names and labels upon ourselves. And one last strategy I want to show you that he used, Nebuchadnezzar did, is that he targeted the young people. Did you notice that? 
You see the word youths in this first chapter a few times. He purposefully brought young people, not old people, from Jerusalem to Babylon to teach them. And the same is true today and has always been that Satan loves to target young people. He loves to target people who've grown up around the people of God, who've grown up hearing the Bible, who, who have grown up hearing the good news of Jesus. He loves to attack them and to seek to distract them from the things of God, to satisfy them with the things of this earth. And I would just want to give a word of caution to you who are young people, if you would categorize yourself that way today, especially if you've grown up around the people of God, to not take that for granted, to not lose sight of the treasure that you've been given and hearing the good news of Jesus from the time that you were young. Don't let Satan distract you with the things of this earth and let you slowly walk away from the Christian faith that you were taught as a young child. But to the older people in our congregation, I want to call us, and I'll put myself increasingly in that category, I call us to be active in looking after the young people of our church and looking after the young people of our community, whether they're in our homes or in our congregation. We should have eyes out for them and protect them as best as we can from the wiles of Satan, from the distractions that he wants to place before them. We are called to do that as a people of God. We like to say as a church that we want to reach the nations and the generations with the gospel of Christ. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's boot camp is in, in full order here, but I want to read next for you verses 8 through 16, and I want to show you how Daniel resisted. Daniel's resistance is what I would put under this heading of verses 8 through 16, because we'll see with this person of Daniel and see for ourselves that we're not just these defenseless, helpless captives who are inevitably going to get reprogrammed by Nebuchadnezzar or by Satan. There's resistance that we are to offer if you follow along, starting in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs, that was that man who was in charge, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Lest you're nervous, we're not just making all the food trucks serve vegetables today. Uh, there's irony in that this talks about food and provision of food. Uh, but uh, you see in this text, right, even in verse 8, Daniel resolves himself. He makes a determination. I am not, the text says, I'm not going to be defiled. I'm not going to defile myself by eating this food and drinking this drink. It seems that the learning didn't necessarily bother him. He was glad to learn the, the culture and customs of the Babylonians because I think he thought, I can minister better to them if I know the ways that they think. So he was okay learning. The names didn't necessarily bother him. Uh, they did, he didn't let those define him and his friends. But the food and the drink is where he draws the line. 
And he says, I will not do that. And we don't exactly know why that was the issue for him. It could have been that, uh, that he felt like the food that they were being offered uh, violated the law of God that God had given to them in the Old Testament about what they were allowed to eat. It could have been that he was concerned that this food was being sacrificed to the idols of Babylon, or to the gods or the, the idols that Babylonians worshipped and didn't want any part of it. We don't know, but that would have been true of the vegetables too, right? Um, but he, he says, give me vegetables. Give me and my friends vegetables because I think what's going on here is that the bigger issue in Daniel's mind and heart was the issue of dependency, that he did not want his heart or the heart of his friends to become dependent upon the king and the, the nice things that he would try to offer them as if their life and their longevity and their health was dependent upon this king and the good gifts that he could provide. He did not want to be dependent upon this king. He wanted to be dependent upon the God of Israel that he had known from his childhood. And so he requests an exemption and the chief eunuch, that guy in charge, kind of reluctantly grants it to him, doesn't he? I, it struck me this week in studying this, Daniel is risking a lot in asking for that favor. It, it, it's not intuitive to think, hey, if we just eat vegetables and drink water, we'll be fatter in the flesh and better in appearance than these guys who glut themselves on the meat that you give to them and the wine with all its carbs that you give to them. Uh, that, that would not have been intuitive. To, it would have been actually the opposite. But Daniel's saying, test it. Let us try this. He, he knows there's risk that could come to him. That chief eunuch is even nervous to grant it because he says he's afraid of the king. Again, a sign uh, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is not this nice guy. And so if, if Daniel would have been allowed to do this and then would have been shown to be less healthy, to be scrawny at the end of 10 days, to, to be melting away, I have a feeling he would have been put to death, but you see this stake in the ground where Daniel says, I will trust my God. We will trust our God with the results here that he provides to us. And God provides it, doesn't he? He enables them as they eat for those 10 days, the vegetables and the water, and as their uh, neighbors maybe looked at them strangely as they did, at the end of 10 days, they're shown to be fatter and better in appearance uh, than their peers. And so Daniel is resisting this reprogramming of the king. He's not giving into it. And I want us to think for a moment how we can resist the reprogramming of our enemy, of Satan. One thing would be that when Satan would like to isolate us from the people of God and make us stay away from the people of God, we've talked about this in recent days as a church, we need to stay near to the people of God. Not let ourselves be isolated because we become easier targets for him. We need to be resistant in what we are learning and what we are taking in through our minds. The, the things that we watch, the things that we read. We need to be people who are coming to God and to his word to shape our thoughts, not to the talking heads on TV. I think right now of an issue like race in our culture. There is so much that we are just imbibing and taking in as God's people that is not a part of the word of God. And we're going to anybody other than God to tell us how to think about these things. And, and we're not sift, we're letting people's opinions become the filter through which we run the Bible instead of letting the Bible become the filter which we run everybody's opinions and thoughts through. We must be people who are mindful of that. A, a way that we can resist is that we seek to not let the rival identities 
that we want to take on for ourselves become superior to the identity that we have in Christ. Or we start to more easily gravitate towards people who hold similar political views or economic views or educational approaches that we do, than we do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, I'd say that we need to resist by not being content with the things of this earth. Not taking the, the good gifts of this earth, the, the, the kindnesses that come to us and our houses, our jobs, our friends, our food, our cars, our health, all these types of things, and just say, I'm satisfied with that. That's enough for me. That ought to never be enough for us if we don't have God himself. We need to have deeper longings and make sure those longings stay at the front of our minds and hearts, that we have a longing to be with God and to be with God's people. So we need to resist the programming efforts of the evil one. I want to read the last section of today's text, and I, I call this heading uh, God's Boot Camp. God's boot camp. Because while Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to indoctrinate these young people, God was also trying to prepare these young people for something in the future, something even greater. Read with me verses 17 through 21 as we finish this chapter of the Bible. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. We'll see that as the book goes on. At the end of the time, so this is the end of those three years of testing, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So these young men, at the end of this three years, they are in a sense graduating from Nebuchadnezzar's boot camp. They've gone through his teaching, they've gone through his study, and when they come before him, he's impressed by them. God has given them learning, he's given them knowledge, even to the point where they far surpass all the, the native Babylonians that he's tried to teach and train up. And it says, therefore, they stood before the king, verse 19. So they're given these places of prominence, which we'll see uh, as this book goes on, that that comes into play significantly. So they're graduating from Nebuchadnezzar's boot camp, but I want us to see that God was working something in these young men while they were there in Babylon, while they were going through those intensive years. It says that God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, right? And God provided Daniel with all understanding of visions and dreams. God was preparing these young men. He was giving them something Nebuchadnezzar could not and could never even dream of doing. And what I want you to see in this text, and we'll see this unfold in the weeks ahead, is that God was preparing these young men for more difficult challenges ahead of them. As they faced this seemingly comparatively small decision about what food to eat and whether they'd let themselves be given over to King Nebuchadnezzar, God was preparing them for future encounters of far greater significance when there was going to be a lot more at stake, when they were facing getting thrown in a furnace when they were faced with getting thrown in a den of hungry lions. God, in these young men's lives, was preparing them with small steps of obedience, small steps of resistance against that reprogramming for much bigger stakes that would come. 
Much like a, a boot camp drill sergeant is preparing soldiers for future combat by giving them some simulations of it in the beginning, God was doing that with these four young men. He was giving them some simulations, some weighty things, but he was preparing them for something that was more daunting, more intimidating, more fear-inducing. And what we can see in this, what I, one thing I'd want us to walk away from this text with today is that we must be faithful in smaller temptations if we're to be faithful in larger ones. That we can't compromise on what we think of as small temptations if we're really seeking to honor the Lord with the more significant ones. That is not how God works. He prepares us with smaller scale things for the bigger ones that will come. I want to point something out to you in the very last verse of this chapter. Did you read that? It says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the book starts, we saw back in 605 BC. The first year of King Cyrus was not till 537 BC. So what we hear right here at the beginning is that Daniel lasted there for almost 70 more years. And there's a different king's name there, right? King Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar was long since gone by that point. Daniel will see far outlast King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually lasts out a few kings, outlasts a few even empires there in exile. And Daniel could have been, think about this, he could have been intimidated by Nebuchadnezzar. He could have bent his knee. He could have said, I'm going to give in. This guy is so powerful. He is so intimidating. I'm just going to give in. I, I can't outlast him. I can't outpower him. He could have been wooed into allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar by these good gifts that Nebuchadnezzar would offer to them, but he doesn't. Daniel was playing the long game. He was saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I today will not bow my knee to you, Nebuchadnezzar. I will not give my heart to you. I will not be identified as one of your people. I am a child of God. And what happens as time goes on is that Nebuchadnezzar proves to be mortal. Nebuchadnezzar proves to be weak. Not the king that everybody thought him to be, although there is great glory that God gives to him in some ways. But think about for us. We don't have Nebuchadnezzar over our shoulder. We don't have him intimidating us, but we do have someone who's even stronger than him. We have Satan, right? He is our enemy. He's the one that Jesus called the ruler of this world. And it could be very tempting for us as human beings to look at him and think, I could never outlast him. I could never overpower him. And we could be intimidated by him. We could be wooed by him. And we could just say, you know what? It's going to happen inevitably. I'm just going to bend my knee. I'm going to give in to him and just live the way that he wants me to live. Because we fail. We don't resist well. We don't resist consistently. But I want to share good news with you. If you are someone who has not been resistant to the programming of Satan, I want to tell you about somebody who is far greater, far more impressive than Daniel. I want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus, when he came into our world, he didn't just go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the kings of his day like Caesar or Pilate, although he was willing to take them on. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan, the one who intimidates all of us, and rightfully so, intimidates all of us. 
And Satan was, had the audacity to try to woo the Son of God. And he tried, just like Nebuchadnezzar tried to reprogram these young men of Judah. Jesus was a, a descendant of Judah, and Satan tried to reprogram him. Some of you know the story in particular where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Think about what he was trying to do there with Jesus. He went to him when he was isolated and away from people. He went to him and he enticed him with food as he was trying to fast. He enticed him with lies, even trying to twist scripture to get Jesus to think wrong thoughts. He enticed him with good gifts of the world, with power and prestige, and said he would give him all the kingdoms of the earth. He was enticing Jesus just like Nebuchadnezzar was trying to entice these young men and break him down. But Jesus resisted him. He did not cave. He did not give in in that day, and he did not give in in the entirety of his life. He was faithful. We all have failures of resistance. Jesus did not. He always resisted Satan. He always obeyed his heavenly Father. And Satan continued to try to come after him. Satan continued to try to, to challenge him and break him down and intimidate him as he even went to the cross. But Jesus resisted even to the point of death on the cross. As Satan was no doubt tempting him to just have himself come down and say, these people are not worth it, Jesus. Like, why are you doing this? Like, you're supposed to be the son of God. Like, you're going to get killed on a cross now? And Jesus does not, he does not give in. He doesn't cave to the temptations of Satan. He resists and resists and resists. And he obeys and he obeys and he obeys. And on that cross, Jesus took all of our failures upon himself. He took all of our shortcomings, all the times we have given in to the wiles of Satan, all the times even today or last night or last week that you've given in to the temptations of Satan. Jesus took those things upon himself on the cross. And he let God the Father put him to death in your place to punish your sins, not to punish Jesus' sins, but to punish yours so that you could be forgiven so that you could be freed from the slavery that Satan keeps trying to press upon you and hold over you. So Jesus went to the point of death to free you. Then he was laid in a grave. And it would have been very tempting on that Friday night and into that Saturday when Jesus was dead in the tomb to think, Satan won again. Another victim of Satan. Another one who death has ruled over. Another victim of his. But on a Sunday morning, maybe like this, that, that Sunday morning, God the Father raised him back up from the dead, never to die again. And he gave Jesus, the one I'm telling you about, he gave him all authority in heaven and on earth over human kings, over you, over me, over past, present, future, he gave Jesus all authority. And the rule and the reign of Satan was ended. Jesus was made ruler of all. And now 
he will forever far outlast Satan. Amen? His rule will never end. He will never die. And the truth is, if we place our faith in Jesus, if you place your faith in Jesus today, you'll be united with him and you will reign with him for all eternity. You can outlast Satan. That one who is so intimidating, who is so powerful over us, who had, used to hold the keys of death, you can outlast him. Because he has been already dethroned, I would say. He's not the ruler of this world any longer. But someday, when Jesus returns, he will be destroyed. And God's people will be raised from the dead to rule with Jesus in a new earth where there's not temptation, where there's not sickness, where there's not viruses. We will rule with Jesus forever. We will outlast our greatest enemy if we're united with Jesus. And it won't just be for a few decades like Daniel outlasted Nebuchadnezzar. It will be for a glorious eternity where Satan is no longer amongst the people of God, where he is no longer has any power or sway. I want to end by saying this. That there are drill sergeants who may seek to take the civilian out of you and make you into a soldier. But Jesus is a Savior who can take the sin out of you and make you a child of God. And my prayer today would be that that is true of you. If you came here today not knowing much about Jesus at all, that you would be impressed by him, that you would find hope in him, that through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, you can be made a child of God. Satan is an evil ruler who is crafty and controlling and wants to bring you harm. But Christ, he is a kind and merciful king of heaven. And he can be your savior. And he ought to be the voice that you listen to. Amen. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. We will sing. Then I promise we will get food for you. But let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for this book of the Bible. Thank you uh, that while Nebuchadnezzar sought to run his boot camp and to indoctrinate these young men, that you preserved them, that you protected them, you prepared them even for what was to come. And we thank you that in this text we have a picture for ourselves of our enemy and the one who seeks to control us and indoctrinate us and intimidate us. Father, we pray that we would never cower in fear to him, that we would never listen to him or his agents here in this world, but that we would listen to you that we would be resistant to the indoctrination of Satan, that we'd be faithful to your teaching, faithful to your instruction and your help to us. Thank you for Jesus, the one who has conquered death, the one who has defeated Satan. We pray uh, that as we sing, as we even spend time together as a church family this morning, that we could revel in what he has done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.